This is Illiterate. My name is Evan. My name is Taylor. I read a book this week. I watched a couple movies this week. Candyman has rocked the box office. The fourth movie, technically, in the franchise, directed by Nia DaCosta. First black female director to have a number one film at the box office. Pretty incredible. So we're here to break down because Candyman, uh, the original film came out nearly 30 years ago. Oh. Uh, in 1992, the Clive Barker short story is what it's based on, but it spawned a couple sequels through the 90s. Less important, but we're going to get into that, the original material, that first movie, and what that staying power was all about, and then what they've done with it now in this film, because this film is not a reboot. They're drawing on the source. They are, and this is an evolution, and I'm, I'm very excited with what they've done to it, so I can't wait to get into it. Thank you for being here. Uh, yeah. Here we go. As you said, Clive Barker's The Forbidden was a short story in uh, one of his books of blood. We covered that episode 85. Check it out if you want to know all about Clive Barker. Check out that episode. It's lovely. <laughs> we'll get into how it's different. Some of the film- Very different, yeah, right? Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. yeah. Some so, speaking of different stuff, some of the films around this time leading up 70s, 80s, we've had a steady diet of Halloween, Friday the 13th, the mm -hmm. slasher. This you is know, a slasher heyday, baby. Uh, Halloween mm -hmm. at the back end of the 70s really kicked it off. Uh, Jason at the offset of the 80s, Freddy right there behind him, and then all of the offshoots. There were so many uh, different derivatives of this. They're begging for this type of material, so it's no wonder this thing was spat out. <laughs> right. But what is unique is these other films, pretty much all white casts in suburbia or rural settings. So having it be set in inner city Chicago with the primary monster slasher character being black was quite a novel thing. We spoke about in our episode on Army of the Dead about zombies because it wasn't until 1968 that there was a black lead in a commercially successful horror film. Wow. Even though films had yeah. been around yeah, forever. Yeah. And of course, that was Night of the Living Dead where Ben is the main character and that also has political social illusions huge, in the huge. film. Yeah. I saw a fun relation as well was that Tony Todd, who plays Candyman always, he plays it in the new one. Always and forever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he, was, he was Ben in the 1990 remake of Night of the Living Dead. Oh, that's <laughs> interesting. That's yeah, super so there, cool. There is a yeah. legacy of him in horror films and, and that representation. Yeah, I mean, I, you can't understate uh, Candyman's presence among the the slasher gods, really. I mean, <laughs> uh, I I love horror. I grew up in horror. My brother's a special effects makeup artist. Him and his mm -hmm. wife do that for cinema. So I I love creatures, effects, blood gore. I grew up in that kind of stuff. So Candyman is always in the fold. This is a huge right. character, and for the black community, I can only imagine how big it must be for them. I mean, that's that. This, we're talking lined up with mainstream players here. So this can't be understated how big this character was. It really gets to capitalize on the fever pitch slasher mania of the 80s. This comes out in 92, capitalizing on it. And man, mm -hmm. setting it in the Chicago project, setting it in the Caprini Green housing project, right, says something with it. And bam, you have somebody that is respected as Jason and Freddie and Michael Myers. And also with the Chicago stuff, as you said, this was not in the original short story. Clive Barker is British. It was set in the slums of Liverpool, 
doesn't have the same salience as the Chicago projects in this time. The Candyman figure is a white, jaundiced-looking creature with long blonde hair and pale skin. He doesn't have the. It isn't the the very the different. Yeah. Babadookish, you know. We'll yeah. say it. You know. So the, and and I was reminded of the Babadook in, on a cinema level uh, watching the new film. So mm. you know that that and I'm being reminded of that as these things are a little bit related there. Mm -hmm. um, I was looking into kind of where all of this comes from because we say, oh, it's not set in Chicago and the yeah. monster is <laughs> different. What what are they pulling from and what is actually in the short story? So here's some of those influences for the original film. The bees and the honey on his torso and all of that is in the short story. The hook hand is also there. Mm, as a part okay. of this creepy Good, guy. Yeah. Good. So I just wanted to bring up another crazy production note from the first film, which was, Evan already knows this, but we had a teacher, our, one of our professors, Bob Keane, was very much- He's responsible candy. like for the look. Uh, it's, <laughs> look. It's, it's pretty crazy, actually. Um, On the makeup costuming department and has done tons of special effects stuff. He taught us much about the world of professional. Oh yeah, he's an incredible individual. He worked on uh, one of my films, so like to have he's been he's worked on it. He's had a storied career. I implore you to look at IMDb for Bob Keen. He's worked on all, so many of the Star Wars films, Alien films, uh, Candyman, Hellraiser. I mean, he's a crazy yeah. guy. He was one of our <laughs> favorite teachers. Uh, so it's very odd and incredible that that. He, here we are talking and directly intersected. He is responsible for the look of Candyman. You go to IMDb, you'll see all about it. <laughs> and some of the other stuff, because that hook hand thing is also kind of coming from an urban legend. Candyman is now his own urban legend, but it's also pulling from other. So in the mid 1950s, this was a big deal. This kind of, oh, there's a serial killer on the loose and mm. he's got a hook for a hand and turned into merged with the lover's lane sort of fascination yes, where teenagers yes. could drive and they went down and hid in the w woods and then they're kissing and then there's either it kills the the hook came off on the rearview mirror yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> or it's the or he's the guy they got, they got out of there when they did who knows mm -hmm. how close they were to certain death yeah absolutely it, it was it was welded right into it yeah yeah a freudian warning about premarital canoodling or whatever it might be but that right. that started in the 50s and then there's other urban legends the the bloody mary urban legend is the big one because the movie has it saying his name five times and then he appears in the mirror right. but that is not at all part of the short story because as mm. we talked about in our Clive Barker one he kind of relishes in the telling of the story he's much more esoteric ethereal Etc. So in the right. short story, it's just the nature of doubting his existence. That's what summons him. And mm. so this is this woman That's who doesn't way believe. And is, <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And she's not supposed to be there. She doesn't. She's maybe has the wrong, not quite honest means. She's researching graffiti in the short story, so okay. that's why she's okay. there. I was going to ask because because uh, you know it, we'll get into how they change it and what her role is, what the what the protagonist's role is. But yeah, what it, she's researching graffiti in the slums there in in mm -hmm. in London. And then she stumbles upon these things. Oh, there was a murder. Oh, there's another one. Oh, this what's going on? And very cool. Then Candyman is summoned by her lack of belief. But the, the, the Bloody Mary stuff, 
which which was added to the film, there's a couple of places that that could have come from in history. It's so ubiquitous. Every middle school or sleepover. Mirror, mirror on the wall. <laughs> yeah. You know that stuff. So it could have possibly come from Mary Tudor of England. She had that nickname because she was known for putting Protestants to death. Hmm. She was Bloody Mary. There was another lady, Elizabeth Bathory, and this is in Hungary in the 1590s. She was called the Queen of Blood. And this was crazy to me. She is actually a serial killer noblewoman. She's the most notorious what? woman serial killer of all time. She was convicted for murdering hundreds of young girls. What? And this isn't a myth. There, you know, hundreds of witnesses, survivors, physical evidence left behind. Oh my God. She was like the female Dracula in real life. The myth Whoa. about her was that she bathed in their blood, but that's not substantiated. But she definitely killed hundreds of young girls in the 1590s. <laughs> so oh my God. There, and, and then the last one is Mary Worth, who was a witch in the Salem witch trial. So perhaps that's where Bloody Mary stuff came from. But wow. I couldn't get over that, <laughs> that serial No. Game. Oh, my well, God. Links in the show notes to all this stuff if you want to <laughs> <laughs> look at it more. Our show notes are banging. Please <laughs> check them out week to week. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the, the thing that you mentioned about the Chicago public housing also factors in as a real life reference because there was an actual murder in this area that has to do with the mirrors. This was incredible. This yeah. is it. I, I'm so glad we finally arrived to this point because this is the linchpin. So I, I saw I saw the new Candyman and we went back and watched the original and understanding how this was set in this place, what this point of view was, how race intersects with it. Coming back to Caprini Green and how this first film was centered around the Chicago projects. Caprini Green was a notorious uh, housing project. Poor construction, high robbery rates, horrible crime. Uh, and it was something it was, like the, the sum total of all of the units had like 15,000 people living in them. It's, it's iconic for all the wrong reasons. Right. Um, there was a murder there uns that went unsolved for a while, and, and, and forgive me, I don't know how that was resolved, but it was the murder of Ruthie Mae McCoy. Mm -hmm. She was murdered and found days after her murder, after an assailant had crawled in through her bathroom mirror. God. The way this place was constructed to cut corners, the wall between units had a hole in it for the bathroom mirror to be there on both sides. They were able to gain access through the bathroom mirror. Horrifying. Mm -hmm. um, and so this story comes out in the Chicago Reader in 1987. And it is from here that the, sh that the filmmakers are directly pulling what they're going to marry up with this Clyde Barker story. They're pulling mm -hmm. directly the the mirror on the wall. That's I think that is probably where the whole mirror thing comes from because later, yeah. as the protagonist and her partner are investigating, they go to the the unit. They go through the mirror. They're doing this becomes such a thing. Later, Candyman comes at her through her own mirror. She's living in now a renovated, like totally redone, gentrified Caprini Green place. So he attacks her through the mirror. This is woven in to the DNA of the original film. Mm -hmm. They're using this real murder in this real place with these real problems at the heart of it. This only happens because a city cut corners. Yeah. Uh, this is how it charges the movie, and this is how it's directly inalienable from it. Mm -hmm. uh, this is why this movie in 1992 has staying powers, because they're talking about very real things, very scary things. And it is subtle, but I also saw, picked up on the fact that in the original film, 
the first woman who's murdered is her first name is Ruthie. And then the neighbor who has the child, Anthony, who then becomes the protagonist of the, the new, new the new film. Her name is Anne-Marie McCoy. So that's Ruthie and McCoy, which was Oh, the I didn't even put the woman. McCoy together. You're yeah. so right. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I knew so Ruthie they, directly. They used Ruthie, then they changed the, the last name. But the McCoy is there. The McCoy the is the name. mom. That's his. That's yeah. their last name. Yeah, so that's they, incredible. There's, there's no denying that, <laughs> yeah. they have, that they have pulled from this incident. It sounds it sounds like a horror movie, but it's re- it is absolutely real. That's mm-hmm. that's real horror. Um, yeah. it, it could not be playing on more thematic cliches, but it's absolutely real. And it's because of a direct sociopolitical problem. Uh, you speaking, can't get yeah. scarier than this. Speaking to some of the real horror, Bernard Rose, who is the white British director of this, who got Clive Barker on and said, hey, I want to do your thing. And then he's, he's the one who goes to Chicago, sets it in Chicago shifted up in that way. He did not, because the short story doesn't have any backstory on the Candyman in the Liverpool slums. So he gave Mm -hmm. Tony Todd, who's the actor who plays the Candyman, free reign to flesh out the backstory, saying, go do rehearsals, come up with it, work through your character. So he came up with it all in rehearsals with Virginia Madsen, who is the white woman in the as the main character in the first one, because like I said, there's no backstory. This is art, baby. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, (laughs) This is art. Yeah, Tony Todd kind of said he compared him to the DC Batman villain Scarecrow or Mm -hmm. the other two literary figures, which I love being the Hunchback and the Phantom of the Opera. These are sort of these monsters. Yeah, who also use tenderness to win the love of the protagonist. And there's a a tragic backstory to love, which is all featured in the first film. But I love that that is all the design of the actor playing him. Who then said brought this in is, is very and very quickly the backstory is he's an affluent um, black uh, brought up in, in slavery times and mm-hmm. is a portrait ma- uh, maker and ends up get falling in love and impregnating a white woman and he is lynched because of that and the lynching ha- they, is where they bring in the hook and then they cover him in honey to attract a horde of bees that's where the bees come together. Gotcha. So that is the backstory that they put together for this original lynching. And then the new film takes that where we are in 2021 and new in our brings us now. And how yeah. how has this happened through time? We'll get there. It's very interesting how they've kept this aligned. Like I said, it's not a reboot. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're building and evolving this. Very interesting. But yeah. Back to 92. We're almost there. I just wanted to bring up one final sort of odd influence that I saw that was referenced by Bernard Rose the director. I don't know if you're very familiar with the biblical story of Samson. He's the super strong guy who then mm. his hair gets cut off and then he gets weak. But when it grows back, yes, he can yes. destroy the temple. There's a story previous to that, which is him and Delilah, who, who then becomes a, a name synonymous with sort of sultriness and deception or whatever. He mm-hmm. Before this, before he gets with her, he is dismayed because he's supposed to be married to this Philistine wife who is not an Israelite. On his way, he just has super strength. He rips apart a lion with his bare hands. When he On the return trip back, this is maybe some prophetical meaning, but he sees that bees have overtaken the carcass, and he just digs his hand into the bees and eats the honey from it. So this is back on his way to his wedding. He uses it as a riddle for the 30 groomsmen that he has uh, yeah. out of the eater, something to eat out of the strong, something sweet. And, uh, his wife spills the beans on it. So they win. 
And so he he said he would give them all new clothes, but in a rage for being deceived, he slays 30 Philistines and gives their clothes as a prize. But his wife then is no longer his wife and goes on a rampage, kills a thousand Philistines with a donkey jawbone, which is another facet of the Samson story. So basically just kind of like turns into this vengeful monster because of love that was not fulfilled. And right. it also involves bees and honey, which I thought was crazy that that's very a, interesting. Yes, it's very yes. much involved in this very biblical good. story. And that's really the the focus, and you can speak to this, of the new film where people are not quite remembering how Candyman was turned into the monster. It's The focus is not on the white woman figuring it out, but the black experience in the Cabrini Green Towers or after. Right. Well, the, the first film centers around a white woman who is trying to get to the bottom of this Candyman myth. And through the course of the film, she meets this mother who has an infant baby. And the plot of the film ends up being that she needs to actually physically get the baby back and give it back to the community, give it back to the mother. And so that is the close of this film is the, the Candyman trying to sacrifice this baby so that um, there will be more, you know, more mm -hmm. to the story. The new film picks up in present day. To put spoilers out there, the new film centers around that baby having grown up and uh, coming to understand that he is the baby at the center of this legend here at Cabrini Green. And through this learning, he invokes Candyman. That's how they start to turn this into a generational thing is starting to understand how Candyman has lived on through the ages and how mm -hmm. it's not just as we have seen him typically in the, the other three films. It is always Tony Todd and that iteration, that backstory. They're evolving it here and they evolve it immediately with the opening of the film. You get a new backstory where it feels almost like a full reboot, but it's not right. at all. I, I saw that there, like you said, there are it's like there's more than one. There are many iteration of oh, this. Are, depending they, on they have they've broken this up. And they've clearly developed uh, several several mm -hmm. different uh, iterations of the character, and they are bringing this to real social things. People unjustly killed by the police or lynch mm -hmm. mobs. How this has happened through time. How that original backstory that Tony Todd created with the filmmakers for the original film yeah. is the onset of this. It's the ignition of all of this, and that. From then on, it's been happening, and it happens over and over again. And these people add to the hive. It's referred to the new in the new movie by the by the man who's trying to uh, instigate a new iteration of the legend. It's referred to that Candyman is not a singular person or entity. It mm -hmm. is the hive. It is the collective that is continuously growing bigger by adding another soul a lost victim, a silenced victim to this hive. Right. Yeah, they take that the and scope. say, well, what? that's just the beginning. But this happens throughout time, all the time. Mm -hmm. If this is all adding momentum to the legend, uh, if they're all, all of these souls are being added to that energy, that's a very scary thing. I saw um, a few of them are based on real life situations. Yes. Um, the 14-year-old child, George Stinney Jr., who was convicted for murdering two girls in 44, exonerated in 2014. Wasn't he electrocuted? He was, yeah, the youngest yes, they person. they have a marionette yeah. puppet of this enacted during the credits, mm -hmm. yes. And then James Bird Jr. in 98 in Texas was the third one that they that they show. And I, the, the thing about showing them, I saw Nia DaCosta was saying they got a theater troupe. You said the, it's these marionette things. They do this sort of shadow 
puppetry silhouette. Yeah, puppetry. because it's yeah. she's very sensitive to this isn't the horror, the grisly retelling the, the trauma of these things. Uh, that's not the intent. So this silhouetting imagery, uh, I was fascinated as how she was also influenced by specifically black female artists to get a lot of what she puts into mm. the, the cinematography and whatnot. So this silhouette imagery is, is based on this uh, artist, Kara Walker. And like I said, it's mm. it's designed to be provocative, but through a lack of gore or removing the visceral parts right. of the detail. So this Kara Walker, she in LA, she has her work at the Broad Museum. It's the silhouette figures kind of of the South slave owning era mm -hmm. and place. And they're very, very- I've seen them. I've hard seen to them. look at, yeah. Yes, I I, I visited uh, at some point. I think probably 2019, um, and I mm -hmm. remember this exhibit now. Now having seen the film, uh, I remember this exhibit very, very, very much. So yeah, um, very interesting. Yeah. So that she's pulling from her as an info. She didn't use her for the film, but it's clearly an allusion right. to her no, work yes. and her depiction very, very of this clear, yes. past and trauma. Very quickly, while we're on these yeah. on these marionette uh, shadow puppets, not only do they tell these backstories of the Candyman, but I mean, this is how they also retell the mythos of the original film without showing any of it. Because they they're like, we don't want to just any. put in the footage <laughs> from the old. Right? Film. They don't. There's no actual visual callback to the original film. Mm -hmm. If there is, it's told through tale, like in through this, through these marionette puppet shadow silhouettes. Mm -hmm. um, so that weaves it all together and it, all, it weaves this all these true stories in with the film mythos. So it all becomes one thing. Gotcha. One of the other things that she pulls from from another black female artist is the work of Carrie Mae Weems. Starting 70s into today, big thing that she did was photographs involving a lot of mirror work or people looking into mirrors and something different being on the other side, which again... Nia uses as part of the horror tropes, as you said before, of mirrors, but also distancing of that violence in the film. Mm. The thing is happening in a mirror over here yeah. gives yeah. it more of a distance. So it isn't so, it isn't about that thing specifically. I'll, I'll post links to these artworks and whatnot. That comes through. I'm thinking about some of the center, you know, probably the crown jewel moments of the film, the kills, if you, you know, to put it lightly, right, right. to put it badly. <laughs> um, there is that, that is that distance in, in those moments is so evident. And I'm thinking of so many of them. This is not a up close shaky cam Rob Zombie movie. There's, there is a distance and a study to this. It's very evident now you saying that um, the influence that that had on the picture. Yeah. So I just thought that was cool that there she she There's was pulling. There's the stillness that, that she invokes that's mm -hmm. very, very interesting. Mm. Um, a quiet that, um, that, that with that distance that comes this odd settling. Uh, it's very interesting what she was able to do with those moments. I see. One of the things I saw in terms of the production in a, in a bit of a poor segue, but just as far as the plans for this sequel, which then went into development hell, the original ideas uh, mm. was because Freddy versus Jason was such a big deal in 2003. Miramax had suggested Candyman versus Hellraiser just to put two. Clive Barker recommended against it. Really? He said, Bye, that doesn't sound good. And then the other big one was Candyman versus the Leprechaun. <laughs> 
was another oh my option. God. And here's a Tony Todd direct quote. I will never be involved in something like that. So that's, <laughs> I'm, you know, in a way it's like, oh, well, it's Thank been 30 God. years, but it's the, the ideas they had was, I mean, they did have these other sequels, but then it's good that they took it and elevated it and escalated it and, and utilized well, it and didn't just do Candyman. Well, quickly, versus. I'll tell everyone, you know, I've, I watched the 21 film last night. Uh-huh. I watched the original film this morning and lo and behold, the second film also available right now. I just clicked, <laughs> let's go. I'll put it on. It's evident that mm-hmm. the Candyman thing loses all of its gusto the moment you take him out of Caprini Green. Right. Um, the second film takes place in Louisiana, and the moment I'm there, the moment I go, whoa, well, everything that made this cool is now gone. I mean, that's like taking that's like taking Freddy Krueger out of his dreams, you know? That's to taking Jason off, you know, to put him in New York. I mean, we found out that maybe that didn't work so well. <laughs> <laughs> so you take Jason out of uh, out of Camp Crystal Lake and there's something not right. You take you take in above all of these, you take Handyman out of Caprini Green. And I'm like, well, what's the point? <laughs> right. We're talking about specific things. You take the specificity out of it. And now he's like a Freddy Krueger knockoff. Right. You know, you keep in at Caprini Green. He is he is a contender, baby. And I think also with the two films that we're speaking about, there is a synchronicity to their own self-awareness of the material. I think people have mixed opinions about the first one because it is through centered through this white woman's uh, thing. But it it still is also to her detriment that she is involving herself in such a brazen careless way without without having a certain awareness i watched the the new film and it was squarely this is a black centered film it's a black lead this is a black artist this is a black director from the top down this is a black point of view i had to go back and watch the original because i had to see how in the world it traversed that because that seems like a minefield where you run into just racist cliche the moment you step foot on that that's a failed that is a kamikaze mission right it's a failed mission and i had to see how they did it and man it is one it is surprisingly self-aware the movie is about a, a an affluent white woman who starts to deal and meddle in in things and not respect a culture the way she ought. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's what the movie is about, and it's helmed by a white director who's very aware of this. The film is what it is talking about, and it's it it, it absolutely is aware of it. I thought it was yeah. very interesting. The politics of this film. The, uh, are very interesting. The '92 film, because right? Because as a caveat, it's like it's doing. still it's still set in '92, so we're saying it's aware of what it was in '92, right? And this right. '21 film is aware of itself in 2021. We have come a long way in 30 years. I mean, I think we've come a long way in like two. <laughs> right. You know, like I think you know, and look, this iteration of Candyman was shot pre George Floyd. For them to come from, okay, this was a this was a white protagonist with a black antagonist. It's a slasher movie. Uh, how did they navigate? I thought I thought for them to navigate these pit holes and actually have something to say was fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, not that it's like an incredible movie, like it's like right, right. you know inc- the most amazing thing, but like to have not fallen in the most obvious pitfalls. Man, they did an incredible job and had something to say. 
this is all the same people who said, well, let's put it in Chicago at Caprini Green. They're on to something. And when you're on to something, much like, you know, uh, this is a really stupid thing to relate it to, but like Fast and the Furious, they were on to something. They were on to what was going on in the streets of New York and, and right. L.A. And they had passion about bringing that story to the, to the screen. These filmmakers had a passion about what in the world was going on at Caprini Green, what in the world was going on in the projects of America, mm-hmm. what, was re- what the real horrors of America really are. Um, so and I love that the, the, yeah, that the through line still goes back to the original source material, which even though it has nothing to do with that, it's still about belief in a story, keeping it true and right. And the judgment of people around you and the horror and trauma of things that you're not aware of. All of that is still in the, the hundred pages and they used that. The new film also is aligned with this in that it is, um, it is discussing art and artists and black right, artists right, right. and how they're represented and how they are how they are to use their own trauma and the and and those things as fuel to talk about where they are and exist in their reality and that to be linked to such violence that's a hard thing to trope so in the same way that the filmmakers were aligned and knew what they were doing with the first film it is still very true for this one. But now it stands to say so much more. It is a reclaiming of that. Now it's really from a black point of view, a black voice. Yeah. Um, and and it's it's very nice to have this so charged, so relevant. Number one at the box office. <laughs> there are there are other things that have come out that I've you know have been we've done we've done a lot of this since uh, Get Out. We've mm-hmm. done a lot of these types of movies and and TV shows, and I haven't caught them all. I've caught a lot of them, but there's some that I've slipped by. Yeah, I am interested in this one is because this is this is a character that's been with us for 30 years, and I'm interested in how you can keep that character fresh without tearing it down. This isn't tearing it down. This is you're evolving it, turning it into something new, and keeping it really aligned with what's going on uh, in the horrors of our real lives. Um, yeah. Oh man, have we done it? <laughs> <laughs> I think we got it. We got we got except for uh, the thing to look out for. Nia DaCosta is soon to be uh, directing another movie, the Captain Marvel sequel, which will make her the youngest person to direct a Marvel film. Oh, my gosh. So she oh, really not just the Candyman world, but she is also someone to look out for as an artist. Nia, Nia uh, is absolutely somebody we ought to be <laughs> keeping our eye on. That um, uh, was it was a. Very, uh, I don't often, you know, this show is not about what Evan likes. You know? right. <laughs> uh, so you know, I I I was so intrigued by by last night that the, this made the research for this week a delight. Um, <laughs> I love when we find things like this that I think most people would argue in the cinema world that the Candyman 1992 film surpasses its literary basis. That it is better because it actually stands to say a lot more with the backstory um, and everything. Yeah. So uh, you know, for it to be now refreshed brought back baby it's as good as it can be uh so uh it was a blast beautiful (laughs) so thank you guys for listening yeah if you are reading something you're really into at illiterate pod on instagram if you are watching something that you love message us at (laughs) illiterate pod on instagram if you know there's something coming out later this year you know what i'm gonna say at illiterate pod on instagram thank you guys so much we will catch you next week